Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. This is your host, Eric Trexler. I'm joined by Rachel Lyon, our new host. Rachel, episode number two. What do you think? Woo! I'm excited. And we're going to be talking cloud today. So my, my second favorite topic behind Zero Trust. So. And we're talking cloud with not only a hands-on <laughs> practitioner, but also a professor. So we're going to welcome Chris Hughes from Otimo, Managing Cybersecurity Consultant today. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here with you guys. So just for our audience's uh, sake, we have, you've got 15 year, over 15 years of cybersecurity and IT experience you know, starting in the in the U.S. Air Force, you were a civil service servant, um, working with the Navy, GSA, DHS, DISA. You've worked with commercial organizations in the financial industry, and you're a professor at the University of Maryland Global Campus and Capital Technology University for master's level cybersecurity programs, correct? That's correct. Yes, sir. I don't know where you get all the time. Welcome uh... to To The Point. <laughs> Welcome to To The Point. So, Rachel, we're going to talk a little cloud security today with uh, Solar Gate, Solar Winds, UNC 2452, probably appropriate. I'm excited. Everyone's, I mean, everything's about cloud right now, too, right? I mean, this couldn't be more an apt or timely topic for us to be digging into. And, you know, Chris, with your background, I think we're going to have a really, really fun discussion today. Yep, I agree. Chris, you've got a ton of experience in the cloud. I know more on the AWS side than the Microsoft side. To us, I think for the conversation, it's it's all the same, right? It's how do you secure, secure the cloud? And let's just get to the point. Are cloud service providers really secure by default? That's a, you know, it's a, not necessarily a direct question. It depends on the services you're consuming, right? Um, you know, some services are more mature than others. Some are new. They've just been released by the cloud service provider into general availability, for example. Uh, they haven't matured and they haven't had uh, a lot of feedback from customers around configurations and default configurations and things like that. Uh, where you look at more of a mature uh, service like S3, where we've seen a lot of public data exposure, for example, through public buckets, uh, the cloud service provider using AWS as an example, uh, started to implement de default, you know, secure configurations. Um, so it really just depends on the services that are being consumed, to be honest with you. And what would you recommend, you know, you, you have a new organization moving to the cloud. Right, COVID's driven them that way. They're, they're, maybe their leadership is saying, hey, we need to continue with digital transformation or, or start it. How, are, how secure will we be? What do you recommend to them? Where do they start? Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a key consideration. You know, a lot of times I talk to folks who are moving to the cloud, they've already moved or they're planning to move and they have a lot of plans around technological innovation, things of that nature, but security seems to be a missing piece of the puzzle often. Um, at the same time, another another place I would recommend to start for sure right out the gate is going to be your workforce. You know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, what kind of technologies are we going to consume? How are we going to re-architect? But what about our workforce? What about the people that are going to actually be managing the workloads, managing the configurations, the people that have the potential to leave uh, insecure configurations in place that can make us vulnerable? Um, so the workforce, I, I definitely would say, is a major consideration right out the gate, as well as partnering, of course, with, uh, you know, consultants, advisors, et cetera, who've actually done the work and have the credentials that need uh, needed to show that. Um, and then what I would recommend is starting with uh, industry benchmarks, like using CIS, Center for Internet Security, as an example. Uh, there's there's CIS benchmarks for both Azure and AWS and GCP. 
Uh, start with those. You want to see like what are the foundational security best practices that we should have in place as we move into this new environment. Okay. And, and when you talk to customers and you say, hey, you need to really think about your workforce, especially on the government side where the workforce is a little more, Rachel, what would we call it? Static or there's not as much much transition necessarily. Sure. Yeah. How do you work with a workforce that has been doing things the way they've been doing so long. And now it's like, Hey, cloud time, let's go. Like, what, yeah, what do you uh, recommend there? So this is a problem I've seen at Navy. Um, uh, when, when cloud was first introduced to me at, uh, and then also at GSA, when I spent some time at GSA and just my time in the federal government in general at different agencies uh, in the DOD and in the civilian side, um, the work, you know, you know, the government has a, a notorious history of workforce challenges around cyber and technology, uh, whether it's an aging workforce that's getting ready to retire, they're not up to date with, uh, you know, modern technologies that are being consumed and utilized. Uh, you have struggles to match, you know, private sector industry compensation and things like that. All these issues uh, pose challenges as well as, um, you know, government has uh, a lot of issues around uh, hiring timelines, for example. Uh, that's a, a major issue in terms of attracting and retaining talent. Um, so in terms of the workforce, I definitely would recommend that, you know, they need to take a look, a look at, you know, what technologies and platforms are we going to be using and how can we upskill our workforce? Uh, to prepare them accordingly. And the good thing is, in my opinion, you know, a lot of this uh, knowledge has been democratized and, and, you know, via Udemy, A Cloud Guru, Linux Academy, um, Pluralsight, there's so many training providers that you can just access for, you know, whether it's a, a subscription-based model or, or reimbursing your employees if they sign up for exams and, and courses, for example. Uh, another, another great organization is SANS. Uh, many people are familiar with SANS. Um, I've taken several SANS certifications over the years. Uh, SANS has increasingly been putting out free events and free uh, conferences, for example, around cloud security as well. Uh, so just looking for options and having a training plan. It needs to be a, a solidified training plan for your workforce. Uh, so they're familiar with the technologies you're gonna be using. Um, it's no surprise that the number one cause of uh, essentially data, data leak and exposure in the cloud is misconfiguration by the customer. And who do you think's making those configurations? It's your workforce. So your workforce needs to be empowered and trained appropriately to handle the technologies you're going to be using. Yeah, we just saw a Wall Street Journal report come out over the weekend, uh, the, the end of January here, where Brandon Wales, the acting director of, of CISA at DHS, said approximately 30% of both private sector and government victims linked to the Sunburst campaign had no direct connection to SolarWinds. I read that as, Rachel, they didn't even own SolarWinds and they were breached. And, and, and the, the, the article continues with, you know, a lot of the hackers took advantage of known Microsoft configuration issues. That's not saying it's bad, but Rachel, that's saying. Just a lot of ways in. Right, exactly. And there's just so many ways in, right? I mean, what is the favorite uh, thing you like to hear is that attackers only have to get it right once, but, you know, we have to get it right every single time. And that's yeah. really tough when the, you know, the tax surface is pretty much uh, as, as broad as your imagination. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. So, Chris, what do you what do you do? I mean, how do you guide somebody to ensure that configuration mistakes aren't made? Uh, so that goes back to what I mentioned before, leveraging those industry benchmarks. You know, if uh, like I said, CIS benchmark for commercial space or or okay. civilian agencies, for example, but also on the DoD side, using things such as STIGs, or if there's no STIG in existence, uh, an SRG, which is a Security Requirements Guide for like a suite of uh, of technology, basically, and trying to align with those best practices. And it's worth emphasizing, like Rachel said, you know, the attackers only need to get it right one time. And then when you look at the, you know, the scope of what's occurring with the nation state attacks, for example, 
uh, the, the resources, the manpower they have behind them, getting it right one time is, is almost a foregone conclusion, you know? Uh, so it's kind of a shift from uh, trying to prevent every possible breach and scenario that can possibly happen and shifting to a mindset of resiliency. We know something's going to happen. We know something may have already happened and we just aren't aware of it quite yet. How do we recover and how do we build resilient systems that can, uh, you know, not put us in a situation where one breach is totally catastrophic to our entire organization, basically? It's interesting in the article, Dmitry Alperovich, who was on the show uh, back during the holidays, actually, in 2020, talked about there are lots of different ways into the cloud. I'm quoting him here because so many companies have moved to the office Microsoft 365 cloud in recent years. It is now one of the top targets. So we're almost, you know, with, with the cloud, we're, we're centralizing what we do, which is great for economies of scale and cost effectiveness. But it's almost, I, I almost feel, Rachel, like the, the adversary. now have one set of technologies to really learn and understand and a, you know, a golden location, if you will, in, in some cases to go. And we're not just picking on Microsoft, right? Amazon, pick any of your cloud vendors. They're just consolidation. Consolidation drives that standardization too. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you saw recently that, you know, the cloud's become a, a really, um, you know, ample target for ransomware, right? They're starting to shift more of, of the attack surface there. Um, and when you look at ransomware and how complicated it is, and then all the other pieces that come, do you pay, do you not pay? If I pay, I get fined. Um, you know, it's becoming very, very challenging for, you know, how do you navigate the path forward? Um, you know, because it's a, there's like landmines everywhere, um, you know, and, and can we get faster? I was going to say something on that topic, you know, it kind of is like a, a dual-edged sword in the sense that, uh, you know, on one side, maybe we're consolidating things in terms of uh, centralizing the technologies we're using. Um, but it, it goes both ways. You know, uh, say you're centralizing, right, and you're consolidating. It allows your staff to focus on these, this group of technology that we're using and really implement best practices and secure hardened configurations. Because uh, on the other side of the coin, say we have a, a, multi, a multiple scenario where we're using multiple uh, providers and technologies, which is very common, you now have very complex systems and they fail in complex ways. And it leaves a lot of uh, digital footprint for your staff to try to cover in terms of securing. And, and they don't know it as well either, right? Because they have to know five different of the types of the same technology. Yeah, absolutely. Couple that with the workforce challenges that not only federal government is, is having, but the private sector is having as well. And, and having the workforce to cover this broad scope of technologies is incredibly challenging. And then not only that, you know, there's a whole other vector in terms of third party uh, risk. You know, you're leveraging all these different, you know, SaaS offerings and partners and, and things of that nature. And then it just spirals out of control very quickly. So let's cloud's talk. not, sorry, Eric, I was no, just no, say cloud's no. not easy. I mean, it's, and if you want to be, you know, let's say a cloud security engineer or, you know, setting this up, you really have to have a, a talent, right? I mean, it, it takes creativity and it's, it's not a one size fits all. So it's also compounding that challenge. I mean, I, I did see an article where you talked about what does it take to be a cloud security engineer in, in 2020? Um, and it doesn't seem like it's a super easy answer um, just because, it, you know, the technology is also changing and evolving just as the attackers are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hold uh, AWS certifications. I hold the Azure security certification. I feel like I know absolutely next to nothing about these services still because they, they're just changing so rapidly. Uh, you know, AWS, for example, has, I think, over 200 services. It's, it's almost next to impossible to keep up with sometimes. Um, but that's part of the, the characteristics of individuals coming to this field, in my opinion, is you need to have 
that ongoing thirst for learning and knowledge, because it's going to be a situation where you're always learning, you're always growing, you're always, um, you know, accumulating new knowledge around technologies that your customers and your organizations are using and just being committed to that process. So when you say the education piece is important, and as a professor here, uh, you know, really what you need is that, that, that desire to learn, to, to continually improve. You can't just go to a course and get the checkbox or get the certificate and say, I'm good. You've got to continually invest because the space is moving so quickly, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was actually a post about that recently to generate a lot of discussion. It was like, you know, six weeks to become a cybersecurity expert. And it's like, you know, these, these kind of things just give false impressions of the career field. It's incredibly complex. It's always changing. Um, you know, obviously there's fundamental tenets and principles that stay the same for a long time, but the technology is always changing. So you definitely need to have that mindset of always learning, always growing and, and always being uh, hungry to keep up with things. So when you're teaching cybersecurity programs to your students, what are you teaching them then? Are you teaching them the latest and greatest uh, concepts or are you teaching more the, the general components so that they can have a framework to work from as technology evolves underneath them? It's a bit of both, to be honest. Like in the introductional, you know, foundational courses, we're teaching them those fundamental tenets and principles that tend to stay the same regardless of technology. Uh, and then in more advanced courses, you know, because obviously part of the process is preparing them to go out in the career field and, and find, you know, uh, desirable employment opportunities or advance their existing career, you know, if they're already in the career field. Um, so they, def they definitely want to work with emerging and, and current technologies that companies are using. So it's a bit of both, to be honest. Okay. Rachel, I feel so outdated. Like I have no time to continue my my education ever. I don't know. Do you ever find yourself there? Um, well, you know, I just got a master's degree um, uh, a couple of years ago. So you have to find the time, my friend. And the only thing you can control is sleep. <laughs> so. My last master's degree was, was before you were born, I think in 2002. <laughs> I'm, I'm about 20 years behind on, on the education side, but it's tough in cyber. It is. I mean, you can read you can read as much as you want. There's just not enough time. Yep, that's absolutely true. And then, uh, you know, just to touch on like, you know, despite being a professor at two different universities, like I said, we're seeing a democratization of the education too, where the degree is, you know, I, mean, I have two master's degrees, uh, but, you know, degrees are definitely not the end all be all. We have some people who are incredibly competent and capable, you know, with these technologies who've learned through alternate uh, uh, pathways, you know, such as online learning, you know, uh, training platforms, uh, hands-on experience, you know, based on the situations they found themselves in. Um, so it's just, it, we also need to, when we look at the workforce, we need to look at that from the perspective of allowing uh, non-traditional candidates into the career field as well, to be honest. Okay. So I want to switch on you. I, I, I agree. I want to switch it up a little here. FedRAMP, CMMC, we, we spent a little time before the show today talking about that. I know you're writing a white paper on it. You're very passionate about it. What are your thoughts? How do they interrelate? Uh, so they definitely interrelate. You know, uh, there's there's cloud service providers like AWS and Azure who are preparing uh, CMMC-specific CMMC uh, service offerings for uh, DIB vendors, which is defense industrial-based vendors who are supporting the DOD. Um, you know, a lot of these organizations are SMBs, you know, small, mid-sized businesses that don't have uh, extensive, you know, back to the workforce again, don't have extensive IT and cyber expertise in-house that are leveraging these as-a-service offerings, you know, from cloud service providers and in support of their work with the DOD. Okay. Uh, so as part of that, those services need to be authorized. They need to be secured and they need to be compliant. So that's where the intersection of, you know, FedRAMP, for example, and uh, uh, CMMC come into play. I imagine there are a lot that don't even have IT personnel. Everything's Absolutely. outsourced. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, just to further that discussion, uh, there were some comments from Katie Arrington on the DOD side recently around reciprocity uh, between FedRAMP and CMMC, which I think is a great idea. You don't want to have a service, you know, because a lot of the issue is getting this technological innovation into the hands of the folks doing the work. And sometimes these compliance frameworks make that a challenge in terms of timeline and cost and investment, things of that nature. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, there's not necessarily a parallel between FedRAMP and CMMC because CMMC allows uh, or doesn't allow, I should say, POAMs, which is, you know, open findings that need to be addressed at a later date, essentially. Right. Uh, where FedRAMP allows for that. So how do you have reciprocity when, when one allows for a POAM, you know, something to be addressed later on? but lets you move forward where the other is like, you're either hundred percent compliant or you're not. And that's going to be the real challenge in my, in my opinion. Yeah. We need to get Katie back on the show. She's a, uh, I, I call her a firewall. I love the energy and the passion for the mission, but there are 300,000 dib vendors out there that are going to be impacted by CMMC and, and hopefully in a good way for the country. Yeah, I think hundred uh, percent, her energy has been contagious and she's brought into that position, you know, and, and, and it's, you know, for better or worse, it's gotten her good attention and bad attention, of course, you know, uh, but it's definitely been a, a breath of fresh air for for the overall perspective of things. And, um, you know, it's a huge challenge around that 300,000 uh, vendor organization that we need to work with. But at the same time, I think we've all realized that that old, you know, self-attestation model simply doesn't cut it when it comes to the defense and national national security. We need to have some kind of third party evaluation and, and uh, attestation to, you know, whether you're actually meeting these practices and, and policies. Yeah, it's like my kid. He's not going to do his homework unless they're inspecting where I yeah. inspect. Absolutely. Yeah, they're going to tell you, yeah, we did it. We did it, you know, but you need to, you need to go uh, trust but verify, as they say, you know. That's what we're living <laughs> through in the Trexler household with COVID right now. <laughs> yeah. Rachel, last question to you. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I'm just a big fan of, you know, when we look at kind of uh, in the public sector, private sector, um, you know, talent shortages and, you know, kind of this whole new world that we find ourselves in. Uh, and, and you started in, in, in government, I mean, basically, right, with the Air Force and then working Navy civilian. And um, it seems like there's so many great opportunities there for cybersecurity specialists to go. And now with this whole remote work thing happening and the government embracing it more, I know we talked to Chris Krebs and CISA, you know, really doing more with remote work. Do you see that bringing more opportunity for folks to come and support the public sector and, and bring that talent there. And, and from the talent you're seeing in these, in these master's programs, how's it looking? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. You're spot on. And this is stuff that I speak about, like I talked about in the white paper, I'm going to be working with uh, uh, on pretty soon here. Um, you know, another issue of course is the workforce. And I think this remote work paradigm opens up a ton of opportunity for the public sector in terms of uh, kind of filling the gaps that they have around the workforce. Uh, one, you you now have expanded your talent pool. Just to use like say DC as an example, you've expanded it from DC to nationwide, right? Now you have access to a, a nation pool of talented individuals who are passionate and interested in the career field. Um, and then also there's a potential cost savings aspect to that. If I'm paying an individual at a certain pay grade in a locality that has a high cost of living versus an individual that that lives, you know, they want to live somewhere else and it's not quite as expensive, there's a cost saving aspect to that as well. Um, but of course, you know, there's, there's a part of the conversation around how do we secure that remote work uh, workforce, you know, the connectivity, the data they're going to be accessing, the work they're going to be performing. How do we also ensure that it's secure as well? So it's definitely uh, 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 an interesting dichotomy that we need to work with. But in my opinion, it's definitely going to open up the talent pool, uh, open up new opportunities for people to serve, and it's going to be a great thing overall. I lied about the last question. Chris, you, you, you gave me an idea. I wanted to ask you on something. Um, you, you know, as, as, as we look at the 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 
diversified workforce out there. I'm assuming you got a great education from the military. Do you see the military as one of the large educators of the American population as it relates to cybersecurity these days? I think so. You know, of course, like the military makes up a subset of, you know, the people in the nation, only a small subset of people actually serve. But if you look at the cybersecurity uh, community, it's actually surprising the number of uh, veterans that are in this community. I don't have a number offhand, but uh, someone recently shared like of the Fortune 500s, X number are, are veterans, for example, CISOs within Fortune 500s, I meant to say. Right. Uh, so an actual large representation of veterans. And it's because you're coming out of this industry where there's a very strong focus on security, compliance, you know, security rigor that, you know, is just not always necessarily there in the private sector, you know, versus a regulated industry, you know, uh, like DOD that takes it very, very serious. So you have a lot of talented, exceptionally disciplined and, and passionate individuals coming out of the veteran community, to be honest. And I think a lot of times they don't stay there for their entire 20 or 30 year career because of the lucrative opportunities, the, the, the flexibility and many other things they can get in the commercial workforce. Yeah, absolutely. You know, of course, you're going to you're you're almost certainly going to make more money in the private sector than the public sector. Um, and, it, and it's just also like some of them have been doing this for a long time. They've been around the military defense, you know, civilian agencies for a long time. They want to venture out and see, you know, what the private sector has to offer. And then there's also kind of that synergistic relationship where like government's looking to learn from commercial best practices. So if you have an individual that goes out and does great work in the private sector and learns the great things, they can also come back down the road and maybe bring those things back to government as well. Okay. So if you could fix one thing in commercial cloud security, what would it be? I would, uh, you know, with it's, it's honestly not even a technical issue. It, it'd be okay, helping good. customers. It'd be helping customers understand the shared responsibility model based on the services they're consuming. What are their responsibilities, and how is their workforce prepared to meet those responsibilities? Rachel, Amazon used to have, they still do, I'm sure, a technical white paper guidance doc. In page 42 was their shared responsibility model explaining. I know the page number because I can't tell you how many customers we've talked to about, hey, there's, you know, both sides have a, have a responsibility in this relationship. I, I, I love that answer, Chris. Not yeah. right or wrong, but I think it's a very good one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a million answers you could have got. But, you know, with that said, it's like understanding where we are in this model. And then also, to be honest, like I said, the overarching uh, uh, majority of, of, of breaches in the cloud are, are occurring in the customer side of that shared responsibility model. So how can we as an organization lean into that model and maximize what the cloud service providers are offering while still making sure our workforce is prepared to meet that gap? Meaning their configuration items or the customer hasn't protected data or, or personnel or, or something, passwords, whatever it may be. They haven't done their part, their side of that, of that responsibility model, right? Absolutely. That's where the majority of data breaches yeah. are occurring. So if we have a workforce challenge, we need to lean into that model and, and let those who are best at it do it while we can do our core competencies. Yeah, great. I, I see the CSPs as being very competent at what they do. It's their business. If they, as we said, when I was at salesforce.com, if, if the customer doesn't trust us, if we don't protect them, they won't work with us. We'll lose that customer. That's our business. I see the same thing with all the CSPs. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Chris Hughes, thank you so much for your time. Subscriber, listeners out there, please subscribe. Smash that subscribe button. Give us feedback and comments. Let us know. Chris, great show. Rachel, it's awesome having you on board. Thank you. Thanks. And great talking to you, Chris. I could talk to you all day. I mean, this is just a fascinating conversation and, and topic that, like you said earlier, I'm, you know, they, there's no bottom <laughs> to what yeah. we could cover here. 
Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, appreciate it. It's point. a very interesting space. It's moving very quickly, but uh, it warrants a lot of attention and discussion. So I'm happy to be here and I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you much. And to our listeners, thank you. We will see you next week on To The Point Cybersecurity. Thanks and have a great day. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 